Hello and welcome to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale here with a quick note on this week's episode. The following segment is actually from the Maryland Realtors and their Get Real Estate Podcast. Michael and I were happy to join Chuck Kasky and Bill Costelli to discuss the red-hot real estate market, land use and zoning, COVID recovery, and more. Be sure to check out the Get Real Estate Podcast. We'll have it in the show notes. Talk to you next week. Michael, uh, again, welcome. And uh, why don't you start us off by giving us your take on the relationship between organized real estate and county government. Happy to. And, and I'll start with, with thanks to, to you all for having us as guests. This seemed like a natural fit to us um, at the Conduit Street podcast covering issues of relevance to county governments. Uh, Kevin and I have been talking about a lot of the similar things that have been coming up on, on this feed. So happy to be guests here. I, I think your members and our members have an awful lot of common interests and things we want to talk about with the economy and, and public investments and, and really quality of life really affect uh, our elected officials' constituents in much the same way that the organized real estate um, you know, universe is, is thinking about those issues. And I will say, sorry, a real quick personal note. Um, I'm really happy to spend time with both of you in this setting. Uh, Bill and I have been rubbing elbows in Annapolis at the witness stand um, together on the same side sometimes and on opposite sides other times for, for years and years. Uh, Chuck, you and I go way back to days with the state legislature and the staff softball team. Chuck was one of the gazelles out there running in the outfield. I was the stodgy first baseman whose main asset was being tall. So, uh, but we you know, have your role. That's fine. So thanks for having us on. Yeah, great, great to have you. And, and I can't wait to hear Kevin and Bill's perspective on the advocacy pieces of it. As you said, we are we are substantially in alignment. And I think one of the things we value also is that even when we are not 100% in alignment, that, that we can still talk the issues through. And I'm looking forward, especially to the conversation, I think we're going to save to the end about land use, um, and which is uh, kind of related. And, and I think I'd like to start off with the market and, and how that is affecting our members and your members as well, because I think we can agree that the current real estate market is crazy and most likely unsustainable. And when we talk to our members about multiple offer situations, people paying way over asking price, most likely paying significantly above appraised value, not all as um, dramatic as the one in the DC suburbs that went was a two and a half or $3 million property that went for a million dollars over asking. So we're not going to get that kind of thing all the time, but this is, it, it, it's having an impact on affordability and is exacerbating what we see in one of our main initiatives. And this is where uh, Bill can chime in is that there are lack of housing opportunity as prices continue to rise especially for first-time buyers and, and prospective buyers of color that are getting priced out of the market, that's ultimately going to have to be addressed. And we're going to talk about that a little bit from the supply side, but also what impact that's having on local governments, infrastructure, broadband, and the ability to meet the needs of citizens of the state uh, and still have a, a robust market that 
has opportunities for people who have been historically shut out of the housing market. So I think that's one of the things where most of our interests are aligned. Uh, Bill, you want to add anything to that? No, I, I think you covered it. I think, you know, um, counties, local governments are struggling with, you know, meeting housing needs the same way that uh, the market is. And it's, you know, unfortunately, the solutions are hard. <laughs> you know, there aren't easy solutions. So, um, you know, it's just, I think, something local, state government and the market and the industry just will continue to keep plugging away at. Let's talk about the housing deficit. There's just a study came out of DHCD. Talk a little bit about that, Bill. And then I'd like Kevin to weigh in because I just saw nationally, the housing deficit nationally is tens of millions. What, what about the housing deficit? What does that look like in Maryland? Right? So in Maryland, Freddie Mac did a study last year. It was kind of an update of a housing deficit study they had done in 2018. And you know, they take a look at all the states, they have their own formulas for how they determine, you know, housing deficit, but they rank Maryland as the 11th largest housing deficit in the country. Um, and then DHCD, the Department of Housing and Community Development, uh, just released uh, their own report taking a look at housing need. And, you know, it focused on not just sales, but uh, rental property as well. And the Freddie Mac report did too. And just on the rental side, they're looking at, you know, a deficit of over 80,000 units uh, for affordable units. So their focus was on affordability with probably another 90,000 citizens coming online in the next 10 years who will also need affordable housing. So, you know, it's, um, it's, it's a question where, you know, supply obviously is a is a big issue for most county governments, um, but it's not even in all the counties. Although we're starting to see the numbers in in even some of the rural counties, um, you know, some of those price numbers start to really move the way they haven't in the past. Yeah, Kevin or Michael, what does this sound like? This conversation at the local level because we don't necessarily hear that so what are what are local government leaders how did they take the the results of the study and what kind of conversations are happening locally to address these issues so i think this is certainly you know one of the the biggest issues that county governments face and we see counties investing in affordable housing programs and creating innovative solutions to try and 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 solve this deficit I think there are multiple factors in play. And, and when you look at the market now, I mean, people are just buying houses sight unseen for way over asking. And you look at the the, the building industry and we all know about the, the shortage on lumber and other building supplies. And that just, I think, exacerbates the problem. So I think all of this, of course, plays into, you know, the studies that we're talking about and the lack of, of, of housing in the deficit. I think that the, the biggest thing for county governments is that, you know, one size does not fit all. While I think this is a conversation happening at every level, counties are going to listen to their constituents and come up with the policies that work best for them. And look, I think the other problem is we just don't have that much land here in Maryland that's left that we can develop, right? So I think working through all of these issues and working with 
stakeholders like the realtors who are invaluable and, and we view as partners on many of these issues. We're, we're serving the same constituents and we're trying to address the same needs. So it certainly is an issue that we're talking about. And I think those conversations will continue. And, and again, depending on what the market does, I think that also plays a role here in terms of, of what's available and, and what we can do to, to help address this deficit. It strikes me that what's lying beneath this is that the, the state of the Maryland economy is probably as difficult to figure out as it's ever been in anyone's lifetime. That, I mean, we've all, I mean, your, your members know better than anyone that the real estate market has ebbs and flows, and they sometimes are tied to changes in interest rates, or they, they're some, you know, largely tied to the overall state of the economy. People have more confidence, and they're willing to make a commitment to buy a home and all those sort of old tropes. But how do you make sense of a white-hot real estate market in an economy that's as strange as today with unemployment rates that seem high and probably are higher than they appear on the surface, that the number of businesses and income generators out there who are merely being propped up by, uh, by government assistance, you know, more or less emergency assistance, we, is a total unknown, that we're, we're not in a super healthy, super revved up American economy underneath all this, I, I don't think. We certainly couldn't have high confidence that we are. So that's an unusual circumstance to have, it seems to me, to have, um, you know, a have so much activity in real estate and all the things that, that you described. It's, it's not like everything is moving in unison and we kind of understand where we're just at a peak and it's going to turn into a trough later. I don't know what this is going to turn into, right? I think that's right. And, and that's why I've kind of adopted the K-shaped recovery model. People, you know, they wanted the Nike swoosh model. Then I saw the square root sign model and of course there's the v-shaped and the u-shaped etc and i kind of really latched onto that k-shaped model for the recovery which is basically exactly what you said it's uneven there will be some industries that will recover quickly and have already there will be some that take longer to recover if at all and then there are some that won't i mean we know that we have lost many small businesses especially and some larger ones but especially some smaller businesses that they are just not coming back we we, we know that and so i think that is a another complicating factor and if anybody could figure this out please let us know because i believe you're right it's it's there's so many moving parts to this including labor costs i mean we're not going to build our way out let's let's set a baseline here we pretty much agree i think that we're not going to build our way out of this deficit. Can everybody agree on that? Uh, no quarrels here. Yeah, I think so. So, and, and given what Kevin said as well, and and those are, you know, I had a my Lori Graf from the Home Builders was my guest a couple of weeks ago, and uh, she rightly pointed out, you know, we talk about building materials and the tariffs and the consolidation within the in lumber industry, which is something doesn't get a lot of attention but there's been some of that that had pricing pressure. And there's also labor shortages as well. And so this is wrapped up in international trade policy, immigration policy, not just land use policy. So I think mm -hmm. we have to really be cognizant of 
how really complicated this is. But Kevin, something that you said, I'd like you to expand on a little. You talked about creative solutions that are being discussed. Can you give us some examples of kinds of things that you're seeing maybe being looked at or tried even? You know, we have some discussions around here about things like cottage cluster issues and uh, accessory dwelling units, you know, things like that to maybe free up some some capacity. What what are the kinds of things specifically are you seeing that maybe uh, are coming down the line? Well, I think first first is acknowledging that, you know, you have to do something right. And everybody, I think, wants to immediately just throw money at the problem. And, and counties are doing that. They're investing in these programs. They're creating new authorities. They're trying to get the word out to make sure that people understand what's available to them. You talked about accessory dwelling units. I know that was a, a big topic of conversation recently in Montgomery County. I think everything is on the table, but when it comes to some of the solutions, I think investing in the, in the problems, certainly, but also making sure that the right people are at the table when we're talking about these kind of solutions, because I think that's also been something that's lacking in the past is, you know, we can sit around a table, all of us, and talk about what needs to be done, but we're not inviting all the people that need to be at the table to the table. And I think that's what you're seeing counties doing now, pivoting and make sure that they have everybody at the table to discuss, you know, solutions to these, to these major problems that we're all facing collectively nationally. My guess would be, Chuck, that what we might see, what we might be at the beginning, I don't know if this is truly the beginning, but there may be a wave of a sort of innovative collaboration on the way that the old school notion of, I want to do a subdivision and I want to do you know 46 units. And the planners say, well, that doesn't fit our plan. And you have this sort of arm wrestling that goes on over fairly narrow contours of how that would look. I think in Maryland and probably other places too, we're seeing increasingly the idea of, okay, how do we find a way to scratch one another's backs? We need, okay, 46 units may not get us there, but if it turns out 32 units and we do it in conjunction with another developer and we actually bring in, we need another elementary school in the area, so can we work toward that as you know, either an in-kind or whatever, um, and let's lay some fiber and cable along the way and make these more attractive landing spots for the kind of people who are moving from the, you know, the other military base or from wherever, um, I, I think that might be the kind of approach that will become more the norm rather than the exception over time. And that probably like suits our collective benefit that um, if we've got some infrastructure needs that can be part of a vision for piece by piece development, um, doing even more of that. Okay, we need a road widening and we need a stoplight, but that's going to serve the people who live here too, it's it, it's almost like the, forgive me, this gets a little technical, but like like tax increment financing. It's this mm -hmm. big high sure. level concept mm -hmm. in the in the sort of corporate community writ large. But those same concepts can can work at a much smaller level, even if really all you need is let's widen this road and put up a put up a stop light instead of a stop sign. You know, you just take off a couple of zeros from those dollar amounts. But you can have the same policy conversation about how to make this work for the adjacent community and so forth. I, I think a lot of that may be the frontier we're getting into. It's exciting. And, and 
I want to talk a little bit later about the commercial use, uh, we've adaptive reuse as, as it's being known. I did it, uh, an episode on opportunity zones uh, last month. That was very interesting. There are, there are very good tools out there that we obviously need to try. But I want to touch on a couple of other things related and yet somehow unrelated. Um, the first is what is the impact of the rising market or what are you hearing from local governments as far as their budgets and the revenue projections based on the current market conditions? Yeah, you know, I think that's another piece to, the, to this puzzle, right? I mean, counties have certainly seen a bump in, in real estate transactions and that means a bump in revenue. And as you mentioned earlier, this is not sustainable. So if you're a budget officer and you're looking at this revenue coming in, you then need to go explain to your local elected officials, look, we have a bump, but this is not going to be here next year or in the next year and the next year. And it's hard to do that. Those revenues, again, we know that they're not sustainable. So if you're, if you're, I mean, if you're a revenue estimator, generally, I feel terrible for you trying to, to figure out what this economy is and what it means and what's sustainable and what's not. But that's certainly something that we're seeing across the board is just that that bump in revenue because of these transactions going through at the level that they are. And, and that's something that, again, I think plays into this global puzzle of what everything means and what's sustainable and what's not, because you got to be looking at revenues in the out years and, and what do you project, you know, and, and I don't know the answer to that question. I was hoping maybe, maybe you all would. And, and I, I don't know. I don't think any of us do. Yeah, we don't. Um, but we do obviously have the homestead credit. So most, when I was, with Howard County, I know that was some of the boom years. And so they just knew, you know, whatever their cap was in terms of property tax increases, um, I have it in front of me, actually, Howard County's 5%. They knew that, that they take, you know, a projected increase in the assessable base because they know what plans are on the books, what the new building was going to come on. So they increased the assessable base by that amount. And they took last year's uh, revenue and increased it by five percent, and they mm -hmm. could, you could do that almost. You know, those are pretty good revenue estimates, at least from the property tax. So, uh, does does that how does that play into the way local governments budget? Yeah, so I think when you're talking about property tax revenue, absolutely, you have some baseline indicators there. But when you look at recordation taxes, yeah. um, which which are probably the the biggest bump in terms of where they were last year, those are more, those are harder to project. Income tax revenue has been difficult. You know, we, we saw some really dire figures back in the beginning of the pandemic. Didn't necessarily play out, but you know, as Michael mentioned earlier, what is this economy? How many jobs are only there because these employers are being propped up by federal benefits? And when, when those benefits go away, what happens, right? And so income tax revenue, I think has been very, very difficult. Property tax revenue, relatively stable, but the, but the stuff on the, you know, on the fringes like recordation tax, we've seen big bumps there and that does play into the budget. And it is, it just matters in terms of what you're projecting into the out years. And I think that's where we see some difficulties. Just to give you an idea, we did um, a longitudinal study of fiscal years, 2010 to 2018. So nine years worth of basic foregone revenue due to the homestead credit. And in fiscal 2010, it was about 1.5 billion because we had built in up to that point such significant increases in values that people were running up against the cap year after year after year. 
by fiscal 2018, which is the last year we did the study, it was down to 213 million. So one in nine years, 1.5 billion to 213 million. So so basically, most of the state caught up to the foregone revenue by, you know, a, as a function of the homestead credit. Um, and, and we just found that really fascinating. What did, what did you guys make of that? I, I think that that capsule is about right. Um, I mean, you could you could probably have a, a two-hour-long learned conversation <laughs> about the nature of, yeah. you know, tax credits like this, which they have an interesting policy goal, right? You want stability and some 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 year-to-year uh, -year predictability for the homeowner, and it also to some degree provides stability for the governments who receive the revenue, and there's some value in that. To, you know, don't don't get too ahead of yourself. So there's some mutual benefit on that front. Um, having a cache of untapped reserves that you know is going to be there in tough times, mm -hmm. we drew that down. That's exactly. that's the, the the bottom line. So in most parts of the state. We're now back at least really close to year to year, um, and that's it, there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. But it's it's an interesting matter of, of tax policy. You end up with neighbor and neighbor sometimes being taxed differently on virtually identical properties, and that's the downside of this kind of policy that you depart from true value taxation. But there's a there's a good policy reason to do that. So I guess like. We like to say, put a pin in that. That'll be for the, uh, the subscribers only pod. People who want the two and a half hour version will do that. Exactly. <laughs> so, so I want to throw some wild cards into the conversation about the real estate market, and and that I think some of this does inform at, at some point it will, uh, and maybe already has. Well, I know already has informs some some local government policies the first is what are what we think might be the future of interest rates because obviously along with a lot of other parts of the economy real estate is especially interest rate sensitive mm -hmm. in a good but potentially bad way and we're already seeing signs of inflation raging raging uh conversations and and um disagreements out in the between economists in terms of what deficits do and what deficits do and what uh, interest rates actually do and and even what is acceptable unemployment rate. Um, and so there's a lot of good literature out there about that. What is are you seeing local governments beginning to plan for increased interest rates, which could have a cooling effect on the market? That's the first one. And the second one, is completely unrelated, but not because it goes back to supply and investors coming into real estate. Because I think there is some upside to the lack of supply. And I live in Baltimore, and we're seeing a lot of properties that had been vacant for a significant amount of time that needed to be rehabbed. That now it makes economic sense to do that. Mm -hmm. And so we're just in just in a three-block area of my neighborhood, which is Mount Washington in North Baltimore, there's five or six properties that have been recently renovated or undergoing renovations because now it makes economic sense for somebody to come in, buy a house for 250,000, put another 150 in it and still get 600 for it, you know? And so I think that's actually a positive effect of all this. Um, on the other hand, 
we see venture capitalists coming in and hedge funds coming in and buying these wholesalers or, and, and they're buying uh, properties because now it's, it's a commoditization of housing, which is relatively new phenomenon. And a lot of these are being converted to rentals, either long-term or even short-term rentals. And this is what I wanted to hit you guys up on. Uh, secondly, it's, is what have you seen? We've seen, obviously, local governments restricting short-term rentals and, and all of that. So where, where do you kind of see the evolution of, of that happening? First interest rates and then... <laughs> Yeah, that's all. Just those two, just small things. Right, yeah, that's, that's, that's hard all. to integrate. <laughs> I'll take a stab at a piece of that um, and say, I, I think most of the universe, and public sector and everybody else together, we have an enormous body of data looking at, oh, I don't know, something like 60, 80 years of economics, where we basically just assume that the, the, the simple vanilla circumstance is 4%. Uh, you know, four or five percent unemployment, four uh, percent inflation. Stock market will give you seven or eight uh, percent. A T bill will get you three percent, and that that's what a normal American economy looks like. And I don't know the last year in the United States that looked much like that, but it might have been like two thousand five or or yeah. So so are we in a new era that's going to are we going to be at one and a half percent inflation forever the federal reserve is going to be that concerned about inflation to basically just take the punch bowl away at the start of the party i, I don't know i don't think anybody does if i mean if, if we can solve that to here then you know we can we can run another podcast where we <laughs> get people to you know take back their coins named after dogs and we'll just invest in the bond market so I, I think there's complete uncertainty about that. But you're right that the real estate market, which you know is a foundation for government's ability to provide services and quality of life improvements and infrastructure, um, and you know, the 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 activity that's relevant for for your members, um, super sensitive to interest rates, and I mean. People obviously are making that translation to a monthly payment. What's affordable? We all we, we all know that mental mathematics that are that are involved there. Um, so you're you're at the end of that conversation. But I mean, I don't think any of us is qualified to think that you know we can we can throw this start and know it's going to land in the right spot. Who knows what things are going to look like in five years? Sorry, sorry to have a long-winded way of getting to the obvious answer. I think as we, we sit here on Wednesday, June 16th, I think that the Fed today indicated that they expect maybe to raise rates beginning in 2023. Mm-hmm. So we're seeing the signs of inflation creeping in, and the Fed obviously is acknowledging that they may be seeing those as well. Does that announcement create more pressure on people to go out and, and make these kind of transactions now? Okay, in a few years, we're going to bump up the rates. So what does that mean in terms of consumer behavior now? I think that's a very interesting question, too. Yeah, Kevin, and, and, you know, that even gets back to the point you made earlier about, you know, the sustainability of our market. Um, Because, you know, there have been some interesting studies, too, taking a look at interest rate payments, because you're right, low interest rate payments sometimes has that uh, traction of having people jump in, which uh, drives up prices because there's more demand, less supply. And so sometimes that locks out people. I mean, we, we're at 30-year lows in terms of uh, first-time home buyers. 
So, you know, what if everybody who would normally, you know, that percentage of normal first-time home buyers was still in the market, um, and it hasn't been for many years. This was even pre-pandemic. Um, you know, it, it just shows that there is a pent-up demand up there. How much of it got addressed by the crazy activity over the last year is unclear at this point. But it does seem to speak to, yeah, there is certainly demand out there that should make real estate and, and increases in prices and market activity sustainable for a long time, uh, as long as the prices just don't get so out of control that um, it just locks, you know, those first-time buyers out. And those first-time buyers are, are what, you know, ultimately drive the market. So talk a little bit about the second issue. The I'm sure that the policy people at the local level are have discussed what the what communities end up looking like when there are significant uh, numbers of investors who keep mm-hmm. these places as either long-term or short-term rentals and what that does to neighborhood stability. And certainly have seen a plethora of proposals, some actually adopted limiting short-term rentals when number one, we're taxing them, which is kind mm-hmm. of a, uh, a, was a first step and you know Airbnb for example required to collect the uh, hotel tax or whatever um, but what what is what is what are you seeing on the policy side at the local level regarding those kind of two separate but related issues so so short-term rentals I mean number one I think you said you know restricting short-term rentals it, a short-term rental should be a short-term rental and if you're going to call it a short-term rental it's exactly what it should be definitely jurisdictions are looking at what these do to communities and they're getting a lot of input trust me from community members and yeah. complaints about you know these these properties that are perpetual rentals but you know at the end of the day i think that there are multiple stakeholders in in this nationwide battle with some of these short-term rental folks about number one, complying with health and safety standards. And then number two, like you said, fair taxation. I mean, if you're a brick and mortar hotel, you pay not only the state hotel tax, but you also pay a local hotel tax and that's just automatic. And what Airbnb has said in Maryland is we will pay the state hotel tax, no problem. That was a few years ago. They didn't want to get into the local hotel tax. They said, look, we'll work with you directly, and they have. They've come in. There are a handful of jurisdictions now that have agreements with them. But they, they say they want to collect taxes. They don't want to collect taxes the way that we want to collect taxes. They'd rather do it all through the states and not much accountability in terms of, you know, here's where all these properties are located. It's more of trust us. Here's the revenue. Take it or leave it. And so I think that there are two pieces, really. It's the health and safety component. And then it's the, the taxation issue. And some counties have worked with these you know, short-term folks to, to, to collect taxes. The health and safety stuff is a bit more complicated, but look, we're seeing this across the country. I think ultimately we want there to be equity with, with hotels, with short-term rentals, with bed and breakfast, certainly the hotels and, and, and B&Bs too as well. It's just about finding a way to do that and creating accountability you know, in terms of what the revenue is and then also keeping our residents safe. We are going to see an incremental issue that's just going to keep bubbling up. If this is if this is like an extension of new technology creating new economies, the gig economy, everybody's you know renting a car for forty five minutes at a time, and 
getting a ride on Uber and then you stay at an Airbnb and it's totally different from the way things were 25 years ago, um, then maybe this, this idea of institutional investors seeing housing stock in desirable places as a commodity, maybe that's just here to stay. That market might be too powerful for the public sector to stop or really harness. So then what does that mean? Does that mean residential neighborhoods are just necessarily going to have party houses and vacation houses and four families come in every weekend for some place? You're not at the beach. You're just in, you know, mm-hmm. you're, you're just in, in, in Cambridge or, or whatever. I, I feel like that might be part of the contours of how do you try and guide the way your community looks and feels for, for the next generation. It, it might be here to stay. That's a great point. And it really does point to the, I don't want to say tension, but, you know, we are about property rights, of course. Mm-hmm. And, but we do recognize that we have a commitment to broader communities and stable communities. And so whether those can coexist, um, unfettered right to use your property, you know, obviously in the legal way, mm-hmm. um, but, but also stable communities are at least as important to us as anybody. So I think that's uh, it's something that we're going to have to see how that, how that plays out. But that's a good perspective. Thanks, Michael. Uh, real quick, we want to touch a little bit on commercial and then finish with a little bit of conversation about the relationship between the state and local governments in land use planning. And so real quick on commercial, we did a, an episode recently on adaptive reuse of commercial space. And we don't have time here today, obviously, to get into all that. But what opportunities are you seeing or what, are, what kind of conversations are you seeing at the local government level about reuse of underutilized and, and possibly permanently underutilized or potential reuses of commercial properties, whether it's the malls or the brick and mortar strip centers or office space or even industrial, um, you know, warehouse space. I'll, I'll take a stab at that and, and say, I think, I think that conversation is coalescing right now as government leaders are shifting gears a bit from a state of actual emergency to feeling like it's start to th- it's, it's time to start thinking about what's next. I I got a chance to go sit before county commissioners at a county meeting yesterday in person at a live meeting for the first time in a year and a half. We're moving back toward normal, and part of that is going to be thinking about what's here to stay that we had to adjust and change during this pandemic. I think this is the kind of conversation that's going to be front and center when we get county leaders and other stakeholders together in August. We're going to have our first in-person conference for the last last couple of years. Um, We're coming up in August and and going to get everybody together, but this is going to be on the tips of tongues everywhere, right? Um, Not just real estate, but that question of, what about the the all this square footage that you know, we've that's come in and out of being in active use? Is there going to be a demand for all those pads and so forth, or is it going to be we break it into six pieces because there's lots more players who want occasional space or or whatnot? But uh, if you're not thinking about that, um, start. <laughs> those conversations are are certainly happening. The pandemic exacerbated the surge in e-commerce, but. 
I don't think it created it, right? I think this is where we were heading anyway. And so some of these big box and commercial, you know, site locations were, were sort of on the downswing to begin with. And so I think this is something people have been thinking about, but now certainly it's elevated. And we all have a stake in the game, of course. You hear a lot about gray fields and maybe putting solar on some of these sites or repurposing them, like Michael said, breaking them up. There, there are a lot of ideas that are, that are going to be on the table, but it, it comes down to what this economy is and are we going to rebound in some of these spaces or are we not? But in terms of reuse and adapting, those conversations are definitely happening. And I do think there'll be a big push from some environmental advocates to use some of these pads as you know, gray fields and install solar and stuff like that, too. So thinking outside the box is certainly in play for sure. And that's a, a good segue. And I'd like to get Bill involved in this as well at this point in terms of our historic uh, reliance on local land use ordinances and, and most of those big decisions, not all of them, but obviously the vast majority of them. Um, is that the paradigm uh, moving forward? And, you know, this is, we're going to end on this and this is where we may not necessarily be in 100% in agreement, but um, I think it's healthy to have these conversations. And, and I'll just give you my perspective, just up front, guys. And, you know, if, if it had been working so well all along, would we be in this situation? I mean, that's, that's an oversimplification. I understand that. Um, but we find ourselves in this deficit, and I think that at least some restrictive land use controls are, I mean, I think it's undeniable that at least to a certain extent that, that, that that's, those are responsible for the, the housing deficit. So what does the future of local versus state control look like? What kind of things are local uh, the local governments looking at to address the concerns um, we talked a little bit about that but be a little bit more specific if you don't mind what kind of where, where are we in terms of recognizing that the way we've been doing things for the last 30 years just is not meeting the demand moving forward I guess that's my real question and and Bill just kind of maybe sharpen that a little bit in terms of the relationship between the state and the local governments as, as far as land use goes? Yeah, well, I, I, I think, you know, local governments are always going to be at the center of land use policy decision-making. But, you know, it, it has been a mix um, over the years. And a lot of times when we do rub elbows at, at the witness table, it's been over, you know, a lot of these state efforts from, you know, Plan Maryland to, you know, even uh, it, it, even though the, it predates me, the 1992 Planning Act and the septic, you know, planning legislation. And, uh, you know, so over the years, you know, the state has continued to, like, give direction to local counties about what they want your comp plans to look like, what it should include, what you should be calculating. And you've had a lot of kind of non-governmental groups too, especially in the Washington area, you know, look at kind of coordinated efforts, you know, what coordinated planning would look like. Um, the COGS and everybody who are looking at, you know, can you do joint planning as well? So it does, it does seem like that is where the trend has been, which is, you know, everybody trying to um, kind of look outside of their own box and see what's going on either statewide or regionally to address these concerns. I think that sets up 
I mean, this is a pretty fundamental stuff for for local governments, that's our beat, and for the real estate industry, that's your beat. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's a really big oval in the middle of our Venn diagram. Yeah. From a policy point of view, I mean, it's pretty natural for elected officials in local government to feel that this stuff is central to why they were elected <laughs> to their role, right? That so and and so I, I don't I, I don't begrudge them that point of view and. And we, we take those issues awfully seriously. The, the matter of, you know, independence within reason, you know, I mean, we're not, we're not asking for the, for the right to do things that are absurd, but the, the notion of the contours of what Charles County ought to look like should come from Charles County rather than Preston Street, that's like in bold lettering, like as you, that's like, that's like the sign you slap as you come out of the, out of the, uh, um, out of the locker room, out of the field at the Mako place, right? Um, yeah. So, I mean, one thing, to put some context, I mean, we have these debates about incentives for more density and, and, and things like that, that, that sometimes divide our points of view. Um, a lot of what local governments, I think, would say is that that's one piece of a puzzle, but it's not the only piece, and the ones that are around it matter an awful lot, that promoting a, a, a good deal more density in areas that are already built up. Okay, do you have the infrastructure capacity to handle an extra 15% or 30% of people in whatever, downtown Salisbury or inside the Beltway in Prince George's County or wherever you're talking about, um, the places where added density makes sense as a policy argument? Okay, you can do that, but you can, you can change some laws but you also need to change the water pipes and you also need to have broadband and you need to have roads and there has to be a seat in a classroom for the kids and, and there needs to be a park where someone can take a breath. Um, without some of those other pieces and most notably, I, mean, I hate to hammer on our old issue, but we've gone a decade on a starvation diet for local roads and bridges. Yeah. Our transportation infrastructure was one of the victims of the last deep recession, and the state just, for all intents and purposes, said this wasn't a priority. And so the share of the gas tax that was there to maintain the, the transportation infrastructure, the roads that get you home, um, with that becoming basically, yeah, the state's not going to take care of that. For the most part, it's going to be you're on your own. Um, that's an awfully big part of our local government saying, we're not sure we can absorb more and more because we can't do that road widening or, or the thing that would be necessary to fit another 600 people in this neighborhood. Um, school buildings, basically the same story. Our appetite, we're, 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 we're hitting the gas on doing school, school construction for the next few years, and maybe we will clear a backlog there. But those policies are very much tied to our ability to, to do some more pro-growth or more pro-selective growth or pro-density policies at the local government level because other stuff has to come along with that house. Yeah, Michael, and I would also say too um, that, you know, it's not infrastructure is such a big part of it. Resources are such a big part of it, but the public is really of two minds on a lot of this as well. You know, we, we did our first state of housing poll back in December and I mean, it wasn't all of, it wasn't tremendously revealing, but you know, what it did show was that the public really sees housing affordability as an issue. You know, over 60% of 
it really doesn't matter how you ask the question to them, really saw affordability in one form or another as a big challenge and something that should be addressed. On the other hand, when you got to the question of density, which oftentimes, particularly in a, in a state like ours, where you don't have a lot of available land, you know, the only way you're going to get to affordability and you ask them questions about density, you know, they, about 60% said, no, we want to maintain the character of our community. We're, we, we don't support additional density. So, I mean, it's not just the infrastructure. It's, you know, people's attitudes are not there yet either. And that's a huge challenge, I think, to address mm-hmm. all of these concerns that, we, that we've been talking about. And that's the rub, right? I mean, if you talk to any elected official, I think when they're first elected, if you ask them, what's going to get you thrown out of office? They're going to say, oh, well, raising taxes. The reality is planning and zoning issues are, are the most contentious, right? And, and like you just said, people are all over the map in terms of what they want. And whenever you start talking about policies that are going to change the character of a community or they're going to create more density, people show up and they make their opinions known. So I think that's a, probably the biggest challenge outside of, of infrastructure is people are all over the place. And when you're elected to, to represent your constituents and they're all over the place, it, it does become difficult to, to create some sort of uh, unanimity. So I, I think that those are both big challenges, but certainly I think we agree, as Michael said, we are all hoping that the, the, the feds can get their act together and pass a robust infrastructure package because that is a huge puzzle piece here. But I think people want things, but they don't want to give up the way they live is, is the ultimate line. <laughs> Yeah, and it does put some context. I mean, despite the big challenges on infrastructure, you know, when you do take a look at some of the these other things, you know, infrastructure does sometimes seem more solvable than certainly, you know, re-educating, you know, um, citizens about about a lot of this stuff too. Um, But it's, you know, there's got to be an emphasis, and, and we're taking that pretty seriously moving forward, trying to just you know, talk a lot about these issues and, and get people to think more about, um, you know, what, sure, affordable housing, housing price is too high, but what does that mean? And too often, you know, we, we try to treat the symptoms instead of the underlying, you know, issue that's driving a lot of this stuff. And I think, you know, the more conversations that we have about, you know, supply and, and demand, I think, we will start to solve a lot of the symptoms that, you know, legislators have been legislating to for, you know, a number of years. Um, I mean, everything, you know, we were even talking about this, you know, on some of the tenant legislation, you know, tenant screening reports, um, you know, tenant screening's a controversial issue because, you know, there's a lot of tenants applying for the same unit, you know, landlords can be picky, but, but it does, uh, I think, you know, speak to the fact that housing supply is such a key thing for both, you know, our industry, for local government, and it's, you know, we're just going to have to keep plugging away at solutions. Well, I think we have to end it there. Uh, Any one of those, I think we could have done an entire episode on. So thank you guys for staying focused. I really do appreciate it. Sometimes it's hard, but uh, Michael, Kevin, and Bill really do appreciate your time. And uh, we're going to have to have you back for sure. Maybe as uh, some, we see some things developing in the General Assembly next session or the one after that or the one after that, we'll continue this conversation. So thank you, guys. We do appreciate the partnership and uh, 
Likewise, ongoing conversation, well worth our time. And uh, I, this conversation was enjoyable for, for me, I think for us. So thanks very much for having us. Thanks. Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks, Kevin.